Joplin asked me if I would preach this morning. He was going to be out of town. And uh, I began to seek the Lord and to uh, try to find exactly what he would have uh, for me to share this morning. And one morning, it came to me, uh, just as plain as could be, uh, through Bible reading, and I knew what it was that I would share with you all this morning. What I didn't know was what that scripture was. The scripture I was currently reading was not it. I, I knew it wasn't. Later that morning, I got a text from a lady who's not here this morning of encouragement. And God said, there's your scripture. Never had it happen like that. Don't expect it to ever happen again. But when we turn to Deuteronomy, the first chapter, that was text to me earlier this week as an encouragement. And uh, I came into church on Sunday morning and Joplin began to preach. And I thought, Whoa, wait a minute, are we preaching on the same thing? That doesn't make sense. We're not. But it was amazing how God seems to have dovetailed it. He does those things. And he does them often. He does them well. Uh, much better than we do things, I can tell you. And, uh, and so Joplin talked. Uh, he preached last Sunday morning about one divine meeting. And it happened at the burning bush. Moses uh, called in to the burning bush. And, and God called him. And when he left that bush, he was a changed man. Not only was he changed, it didn't just change his life, but it changed millions of people's lives for generations and really to this day still affects. One divine meeting. You know, Moses left that meeting that day and made his way into Egypt, met with the elders of the Israelites. Uh, it's well worth reading if you haven't read it lately. Go read the first five books of the Bible. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, law and things like that, but it's incredible what God did. And he led, led the Israelites out. They, they, uh, he got there. He had to convince the elders uh, to accept them as their leader and to represent them before Pharaoh. He met with Pharaoh. Uh, you know the story of the ten plagues. And on the 10th plague, God so devastated Egypt, he broke Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh said, get out of here. The Israelites quickly gathered everything they had and everything their neighbors would give them. They went begging. God told them to. And they cleaned Egypt out as they left and headed into the wilderness. You know, as they headed into the wilderness, God began to lead them. A cloud in the day and fire at night. And they followed that. That's how they were led. They didn't know where they were going. They followed and they were led by God. Now, I just wonder, tomorrow morning when you go out and get in your car and head to wherever you go to work, if there was a cloud in front of your car and it led you, and when you got out, you followed this cloud and God led you that way all day long for the next several months. At night, a, a pillar of fire. Uh, earlier said, my wife has afterburners on her car. That's not what we're talking about here. <laughs> She'll kill me later. But a pillar of fire at night protected them because they had no more than got out of Egypt and headed down the road 
the Pharaoh decided that he wanted his people back. He wanted his slaves back, and he went after them. He gathered his army, climbed in their chariots, and they went after them. And it was a pillar of fire that separated them and protected them. He led them out onto the beach there at the Red Sea, and now they're trapped. But Pharaoh can't get to them. God's protecting them miraculously. God parts the Red Sea, and through the Red Sea they go. Can you imagine all of this? I can't. But I don't, know, I don't know if they were all able to gather on the other side or not. But at least some of them had to look back and they saw that Pharaoh was coming after them. God had moved the cloud either up or out of the way or to their side. And here comes Pharaoh. He's coming to get them right through the Red Sea. And I can only imagine the roar that the water must have made when God released it back over the Egyptian army. And suddenly, their ties back are cut. No more do they have to worry about Pharaoh. He's not coming to get them. He doesn't exist anymore. God has worked that battle. He's destroyed them. Now they're on the other side, and now there's no going back. Now it's desert. They struggle with water. They struggle. God takes them to Mount Sinai and miraculously gives them a new thing. He gives them a new law, a law they've not had before. Now they know what to do, what not to do. It's a new day. What do they do? Grumble, gripe, turn from him. After all of this, they turned away from him. He puts up with what I'd call their nonsense punishes some of them, and they drive on. And now we find ourselves with them ready to cross into the promised land. And God tells them, choose a man from each of the 12 tribes. Send 12 men. Go check it out and go. And 12 men go and 12 men come back. Two of them have got poles and they're carrying grapes that it took, uh, what do they call a group of grapes? I don't know. Cluster of grapes. We've got these clusters of grapes so big that it takes two men to carry them. Now, I go to the grocery store, and I get my dainty little thing of them, and I go home, put them in the freezer. I love frozen grapes. Can you imagine a cluster of grapes that takes two men to carry it, to pick it up? Imagine going to the grocery store. Ladies, you have to find two men, somebody to help you put this cluster of grapes in your basket. There'd be nothing left. To, there wouldn't be any room but for grapes in your basket. This is the kind of thing that was there. And these two men, Joshua and Caleb, they come back telling the stories. Man, this land is amazing. Let's go take it. It's going to be incredible. We can't wait to get there. It, it, God promised it to us. Our forefathers bought their burial uh, there. They, they're buried. It's going to be exciting to get there. Let's go. And then the other ten men stand up. And all they can talk about is how tall the walls are on the cities. How huge the armies are. How well equipped they are. And then there's giants. They talk about the sons of Anak. 
said they're so big that we look like grasshoppers. They look at us like we're grasshoppers and we feel like grasshoppers. That's how big these men were. And those ten men were scared. And what did Israel do? They got scared. They got mad at Moses. What would you do? Drag us here to get slaughtered? How dare you? And they separated that night. And the next morning, God said, 40 years before I'll let you in. And not one person that left Egypt except for two men will ever enter the promised land. Forty years they wandered around in the desert, in the wilderness, led by Moses. And here at the beginning of Deuteronomy, we find that after 40 years, most of those people have now died. There's virtually no one left in Israel that remembers Egypt. God said that's what would happen, and now we're 40 years later. Miriam, who was, you'll remember, Moses' sister that helped when he was in the Nile, helped get a nurse for him. She had been a large part of the music and the leadership, uh, part of you know, Moses' family and part of the leadership of the Israelites. She's now died this year. And so almost the mother of the, their country is now gone. Aaron, the spokesman for Moses, has now died. He was part of that group. And Deuteronomy is written, tradition tells us, and best they can figure, about two months before Moses dies. So Deuteronomy is kind of a synopsis of all of the first four books and yet a standalone book of its own. And it's some of the last words that Moses has to say to the Israelite people. And if you would, I'd ask you to stand for the reading this morning. We read six verses out of the first chapter of Deuteronomy, verses 3 through 8. This is Moses speaking to the, the Israelite people. It says, In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them said, after he had defeated Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Basham, who lived in Ashtaroth, and in Edrei. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, get this, the Lord our God said unto us in Horeb, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey Go to the hill country of the Amorites, to all their neighbors, and to Arabah in the hill country, and in the lowland in the Negev, and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites, and Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in, take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. If you would bow your heads, pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house to worship you. 
God, we felt your presence this morning. Lord, we pray that you would open the hearts, the minds, the souls, the ears of the people to listen. God, you would take these stammering lips and you would uh, have me to say nothing more, nothing less, and you would have me to say. We'll give you the honor, the glory, and the praise, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So it says they were at Mount Horeb. What's significant, there's many things significant about Mount Horeb, but Mount Horeb is where our story first began. You see, the burning bush that Moses was called to. See, Moses had been in this wilderness, Midian, for 40 years. He'd been a shepherd. God had been preparing him for 40 years. Not only had been preparing his heart, but he also had been teaching him the land. So he now is in Midian, uh, and when he went and got the Israelite people and brought them back, they ended up in that land. And now, 40 years later, they're at Mount Horeb. It's where God first met with him. And now God's telling them to go in and take it. But why, 40 years later, we know the story, but why? I ask the question, why? I'll tell you why. Fear. Fear is why. They were fearful. When they came up to what God had told them to do, we talked about all the amazing things that God did from the time that they left Israel or uh, Egypt, even, even before in the plagues, how incredible God was. And yet, here they are, when they were told to go in, it cost them 40 years. Fear, anxiety. They couldn't handle reality of what God was going to do. All they could see was what they had and what they wanted to hold on to. They were afraid to follow what God had told them to do. And so, as we look this morning, I want to look at fearful to faithful. You know, here in America, we've certainly taken up this mantra of fear, facing reality. And I'm not just talking about COVID because how we've acted at times as people over COVID is a symptom of a, a larger problem. This fearfulness that we have, we're a fearful people. I, the taking of anxiety drugs is at an all-time high. If you need them, I'm not telling you not to take them. Don't leave here and think that. What I'm saying is that as for 5% of the world, which is what the United States makes up population-wise, we take 75% of the drugs, the prescriptions. Mm. What's the rest of the world doing? You know, when the opiate, opium uh, growers around the world and third world countries grow it, they don't grow it to sell it to their neighbors. They grow it to ship it to America. That's where the money's at. That's where they make their money. That consumption is an all-time high. It's crazy what's going on. We see lives changed here often because of the devil working through that stuff. I've had, and you probably have too, family members either addicted to it, whether it's anxiety medicine, the painkillers, the things that are going on. Why? It's not to face reality. It's the struggle with facing reality. And that's what the, the Israelites were doing here. The fear of reality. 
A, a few years ago, uh, God brought a man into my life, Ken Norton. Love Ken Norton. I love him today. I've lost track of him. I don't know where he's at. But Ken Norton, at the time, this was probably 10 years ago, uh, was in his 50s. His teeth were half as long as they should be because he had spent time in prison, and when they had put him in the hole, he had gotten a hold of some wires, and as he was going crazy, had ground his teeth off chewing on wires, what he told me. Ken Norton, one of the most intelligent people I've ever met in my life. He was, he just was sharp. You could, he, he understood things. He could, he could do things. And yet he was a hopeless alcoholic. If you gave Ken Norton 20 bucks, he'd be drunk for three days. As I told you, I'd met him. He came into our lives. He really became part of our family. He spent most Sundays with us. Uh, one, we enjoyed his company. Uh, when, when Ken was sober, he's a great guy. The other is, if I took him home, um, chances are later in the afternoon, I'd find him laying in his yard, passed out drunk. And uh, so if he spent the day with me, then uh, we took him back to church on Sunday night, and, uh, and he was with us. Ken Norton, he, he could not face reality. He couldn't deal with things the way you and I do. He had to deal with it with a bottle, with alcohol. Ken Norton is the only guy I've ever known of to get kicked out of jail. True story. Most of us are trying to not to go. But Ken Norton had a car. And I don't know if it was a DUI, he got a ticket, something. And I think it was in Valley Center. And he owed about three or $400. Well, I told you $20 to keep him drunk for three days. Imagine if he had three or $400, what he would have done with it. He didn't have it. And they impounded his car and took it when they took him to court. The, the judge said, you pay the $400 or go to jail for 30 days. And he's like, huh, I got a 30-day vacation. I'm going. And off to jail he went. The judge realized what was going on and called him back to court and kicked him out of jail. True story, it happened. As sad as that is. Ken Norton, when he was a small boy, his father had died. And by the time he was 13 years old, he was uh, leading his own gang. They robbed in San Diego, California. They broke into, stole, and robbed pharmacies. He told me he would have a line of people down his driveway uh, into his garage buying pills from him. And then his friends began to die. And the reality of that still bothered him. He was in his 50s. He thought he would go about life. He got married, had a child. That certainly didn't work out. And he just ended up a hopeless drunk. Why? He couldn't face reality. I, I would talk to him about things. And the simplest thing that you would give him that would be responsibility, or even to talk to him about, man, Ken, you're so smart. You could do amazing things. Would just fold him up. He would be done. You couldn't. And, I, and so for a couple of years, we kept him in groceries. We wouldn't allow him, let him go hungry. But he was so, so far gone that I remember once going to get him, and he said, I'm sick. I'm really sick. And I said, why are you sick? You know those potatoes you bought me? I think maybe they're bad. 
and he didn't cook them. He just ate them raw, and now he's sick. This was how, how he handled life. Why? Anxiety, fear. He could not handle a daily life as you and I do. And to this day, I don't know that Ken is a lot better. Like We got him into rehab. He spent a couple of years there. As long as he was in an institution, he seemed to function fairly well. But outside of that, not that God couldn't, but he couldn't stand to stand up. The fear of reality. We see our children. How is it that 10-year-olds are on anxiety medicine? We see it often. It's a real struggle. And listen, I'm not, I'm not down on those children. What kind of a society is it that's creating the kind of people that have to live on anxiety medicine? Something is wrong. Only God has those answers. But we've created, and we are, a fearful, anxiety-driven people in this day and time. When you leave here, you go home, and look at all the warning signs on everything that you've bought. It's amazing what they're trying to keep you from doing. We are a scared people. We fear what others will think. And boy, I'm telling you, that's a heavy one right there. That's part of what affects our children on the, uh, uh, on the internet, on the social media. How such a virtual world becomes so real to our children and to us. Most of us in this room, most of us, I'm not, but I see my wife's Facebook. Most of us are involved in that. And how, how rough that can get. Uh, how mean and ugly when someone's typing behind a screen saying things to others they can be and how hurtful it can be. But the fact is, we worry about what others think. That's part of the reason sometimes we buy the things we buy more than we can afford to impress others. We're worried about what they think. Fear. We fear losing our health. Take all kinds of uh, vitamins. We do all kinds of things. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying there's that fear of losing our health. Sometimes it's real. The fear of losing our possessions, whether it's a family member, it's a thing. And we insure almost everything, right? Pay insurance premiums in case we lose it. We're fearful of what we may lose. God asks us to trust him. But we're fearful of losing our possessions. We fear the unknown. We, we fear tomorrow. People all the time, we talk about it. We fear. We fear death. There's people deathly scared, <laughs> deathly scared of death. That scared. Now this one I can talk a little bit about. I faced death twice this year. The first time, the afterburners, we were leaving the house. No, we went to the hospital. Had 100% blockage in my right main artery. They told me later, most people don't live. I remember praying on the way to the hospital. I said, God, I gave you my life. If it's now, 
then be with me. If it's not, God, be with me the next few hours. And sure enough, there was a couple of times there in the hospital that things went south and uh, my blood pressure bottomed out. They were rushing around. But I can tell you that every moment there, not in my own power, but I was just calm. It was it, it, when the, the place is going crazy, everybody's running, talking, or hollering, whatever. I was calm. I really was. I just like, you know, Lord, whatever. And I'm not capable of that on my own. I want you to know that. I didn't do that on my own. I wasn't being some tough guy standing up for, you know, I'm going to be the tough guy through this. I wasn't that at all. God gave me a calming spirit. I had asked him for it. He promised he would be there. A few months later, I stood in the grocery store over here on Rock Road and leaned against the shelf. I couldn't move. I was blacking out. I couldn't even kneel down. I couldn't holler for anyone. They had put a heart monitor on me because we knew something was wrong. In a few minutes, they called me. Uh, it eased up. I was able to get out of the hospital or the the store and make it home. And they called me and said, hey, did you have an episode while ago? Yeah, sure did. Sure enough. Well, we clocked your heart at 270 beats a minute. That's the top half of it. The bottom half won't go that fast. It tends to pool the blood, they told me, and clot. And then you have strokes. God was looking out for me. Both of those times, I can tell you, I was just calm. There, I wasn't panicked. I wasn't worried about it. I wasn't, God, you brought me to it. I assume you'll bring me through it or I'm going to heaven. I'm kind of excited about that. Although I'm really enjoying that grandkid. I tell you, not really looking to kick out just yet. But me and her got some honoriness to stir up. But the fact is that God was with me. And I can tell you that you can face death and you can face it calmly. You do not have to be scared of it. You do not have to be, live in fear. We are a fearful world. We're a fearful people. And this is what cost the Israelites 40 years walking through the desert because of fear. Fear will paralyze you. And that's what it did to the Israelites. Two people, Joshua and Caleb, left Egypt and entered Canaan. They were probably mad at the rest of them because they cost them 40 years of being in their homeland. <laughs> but they did get to enter. They got to go there. Fear. I want you to get this. If you get nothing else, I want you to understand about fear and what it is. What it can do. Fear and not acting or acting upon your fears as a Christian, become, can become rebellion. And that's what had happened. The Israelites became rebellious towards God. He told them to do something. He had provided everything to this point. And all they had to do was stick their big toe in the Jordan River, and he was going to take care of things. All they had to do 40 years later is march around these cities, and these massive walls fell flat. All they had to do was do the right thing. Follow God's will. And I can only ask the question of myself and of you. What does fear cost you? What is fear costing you? What is fear costing us? You see, 
Moses, 80 years prior to this, knelt at a burning bush. And in spite of his fears, in spite of arguing with God, I can't do it, he went and it changed history. What burning bush are you sitting at? Refusing to do what God has asked you to do. It concerns me. What has God asked me to do? And I've yet to be willing to do it. You know, when I begin to study the Bible and study these things, I always wonder what, and obviously you read the, the story there, but what does God have to say about this? 365 times at least, one for each day, God says in the Bible, fear not. I told this to my daughter and she said, Dad, what do you do on leap year? Recycle one. I don't know. It'd be all right. You can get one ahead. Use one twice. But the fact is, at least 365 times, God says, fear not. When I read the Bible, I love to read what Jesus has to say about things. The Bible is inspired. It's God's word. But I really enjoy reading, uh, in my Bible, the, the letters in red. I know that Jesus was speaking then. Uh, straight from his mouth. And I love to read that part. And one of my favorite portions of Scripture is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Man, I'm telling you right now, you could live a life off of those three chapters. Jesus speaking, talking about life. And he addresses it square in the middle of that. He addresses fear and being anxious. And I want to just uh, walk through it and talk, uh, talk through it, preach through it here this morning. Matthew, the 6th chapter, verses 25 through 34. What Jesus had to say about fear. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. We probably could stop right there. He didn't though. He kept going. He began to explain it. Don't be anxious for your life. What will you eat or what will you drink? Nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He's talking about life here. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And we always hear, you know, that God's eye is on the sparrow. Uh, there's an old song about it. Uh, and I like old songs, so I like it. But uh, God talks about his eye is on the sparrow. Are you not more value than they? The Bible says that the soul of one man, the soul of one woman, one soul is more valuable than the entire world. That means Bill Gates can't pay for one. That means they can't put one in the budget in Washington. One soul is more valuable. Your soul is more valuable than the entire world. God gave you one. And what you do with it will impact eternity. In fact, If you follow the wrong path 
Eternity could be hell. And to end up in hell, you're not supposed to be there. It had to be enlarged to take us in or those that don't make it in. It wasn't planned for man. And it's not going to be a pretty place to be. The fact is that we don't have to go there. Jesus died. He, prov he provided a way to keep us from having to go there. One valuable soul, one soul, it'll, it'll reverberate through eternity. Verse 27 says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life? It's documented in a fact that uh, to be anxious uh, or fearful uh, will shorten your life, not lengthen it. The stress of will shorten your life. You can't extend it by being afraid, anxious. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon was the smartest, richest man to ever live. That's what God said. He made him that way. He gave him that. And yet, God has dressed the lilies of the field who last days better than Solomon could ever dress himself. Even in all of his glory and his splendor, he was never what the lilies of the field are. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? God's going to take care of us. And I must tell you that fear and faith are like oil and water. They don't mix. And ladies, you've cooked. Men, you've changed oil in your car. And oil and water don't mix. You can pour oil into water and it separates. I've seen oil or water end up in an engine and it gets all churned up and it might be foamy, but it's not one thing. It doesn't mix and it'll separate out. And fear and faith are like oil and water. You might throw them all together, but they're never going to be in the same. Faith will drive out fear. Faith in God and following him will drive out fear. He's, and that's what Jesus is saying here. Be anxious for nothing. It says, therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? And why would that be? In verse 32 it says, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. I, told, I mentioned two weeks ago that God doesn't measure us and this, in this world the way this world measures things. Okay? He's saying don't, don't worry about all of these things. That's not what's important. Don't be anxious about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, where you're going to live. 
God has a plan. If you're a Christian and following him, he has a plan. That doesn't mean you don't work hard. You show up every day. You do what needs to be done. God will open doors. He will do things uh, much better than you ever could. Here's how he says to take care of it. Do this. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Take care of that. Take care of seeking God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. God says, seek me. Draw nigh unto me and I'll draw nigh unto you. Begin to humble yourselves and to confess your sins out. Confess your fears. Begin to confess the things that are a struggle. We've seen that start this last Wednesday night. I pray that it will continue because there is power in that that is beyond belief. The fact is, confess your sins. Begin to share with others and to share with God and to admit our struggles and our fears. Seek his righteousness. Draw near to him. And all these things will be added to you. Why? He already said. He already knows what you need. He knew it before you did. Didn't say he was going to give you everything you want. He said he'll give you everything you need. God takes care of us. He'll take care of us in ways we could never imagine. He puts the right people, the right things, the right place in the right place. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. We were talking about that a while ago. People are scared of tomorrow. Don't be anxious for tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Chris, if you would come. I guarantee you that tomorrow there will be trouble. It's guaranteed. There's going to be, we're going to face a trial. Tomorrow will be some kind of a trouble. There's no reason to worry about it today. In fact, we have to trust God. He's got a plan. And as we begin to trust him, it's amazing to feel and to know and to see the anxiety and the fear begin to drain away. We can be, forget about worrying about tomorrow, worrying about all the things that are coming at us, all the things that we're going to deal with. Why? Because God said. He said he already knew about it. He would take care of it if we would trust him. The Israelites didn't trust him. The Israelites got fearful. It cost millions of people their lives. I would ask you to stand with me all over the, all over the room today. I don't know if God spoke to you. I know that he gave me this for a reason. Fear. What is fear costing you today? Have you said no to surrendering your life to him? You've not accepted Jesus Christ as your savior because you're fearful of what you'd have to give up. I've seen it. I've seen people unwilling to walk away from things that happened to the rich young ruler who wouldn't give up all the things that he had. If you're here this morning and you're unsaved, we would love to pray with you. We open the altar and we're going to in a minute. The reason we do that is because if God speaks to you now, there's no better time than now to take care of it, to come forward, 
There's people here that want to pray with you. If you're here this morning and a Christian, maybe you've been struggling. Maybe God's told you to do something and you fearfully have not done it. Maybe you've just been fearful, period. Maybe you're scared of what other people think of you. Fear will paralyze you and it turns to rebellion against God. I want you to remember that. I would just ask this morning, God doesn't want you to live that way. It's not his plan. God wants you to go to, from fearful to faithful. And he's just waiting for you. He wants to meet with you.